Good morning. Anybody have an iPod or a calculator on their uh, phone or anything like that with them today? Okay, go ahead and get that out because we're going to be using that here in just a minute. But before we get started, yeah, here we go again, right? Uh, before we get started, I, I did want to thank everybody who was involved in helping clean up this week. Uh, if you were here last week, it looked like a forest around here. It was a total mess around here because our lawnmower had broken. Fortunately, we got the lawnmower fixed, praise the Lord, and now you can actually walk through without getting like all scratched up around your, your calves and everything. So, nice to have uh, clean grounds, right? Well, I thought that we'd start off today with, um, you know, we've, we've been talking about things that we should focus on, things that are really important to, uh, to the Christian faith, and so I thought that today we'd start off with kind of a, a fun little game. What I've got here is, uh, is a bag with a whole bunch of ping pong balls in it, and I've sequentially numbered the, the balls 1 to 20, like here's number 18, number 9, uh, number 8, and the way that this game is going to work is uh, we're going to pull them all out sequentially. There are 20 of them in here. And so I thought that real quick we'd go around and see how long it takes us to get 20 balls out of here in sequence. Now, before we get started, I thought you know, it would be a good idea if we, if we all committed to, um, to sticking around until we get this done. Okay, let's say, let's say that I'm going for, uh, for ball number one. What are the odds that I'll pull ball number one out? This is interactive. You guys can answer. How many, what are the odds of one in 20? Right. So the odds of pulling ball number one out are 1 in 20. So if you've got your calculator, type 20 into your calculator. Okay, so let's say I put ball number one back in to the bag. And I'm going for ball number two now, right? Because we're, we're, we're going in sequence. What are the odds that I'll get ball number two? 1 in 20 again, right? So in, on your calculators, type times 20. What does that give us? What are the odds of pulling ball number one and ball number two out? One in 400. Here's where it gets crazy. Let's say I put that ball back in. Now I'm going for another ball. Ball number three, right? Because we're going for sequence here. What are the odds that I will get that ball? Again, it's one in 20, right? Okay, now times 20 again on your calculator. What's that number? 8,000. That changes my idea about sticking around until we get it done. I don't know about you guys. Uh, yeah, that's, it's pretty improbable, right? It, it's probably not going to happen because then what you start doing is it just starts compounding and compounding and the probability, the likelihood of it happening becomes extremely unlikely. In fact, if I were to tell you guys that I sat around yesterday pulling balls out of a bag trying to get them in sequence, how many of you would believe me if I said, I did it, I got to number 20? How many of you would believe me if I said I did it in my lifetime when the odds are one in trillions and trillions. You wouldn't believe me, right? And rightfully so. I, I wouldn't blame you for, uh, for not believing that I could pull the balls out in sequential order in my lifetimes. If I told you I did, you'd say, baloney. Your baloney meter's going, eh. no, he's, he's lying, right? Now, the point here is not to talk about uh, ping pong balls or, or anything like that, however. Uh, the point here is to talk about the human cell, uh, one human cell, just one, is ridiculously more complex than a bag full of 20 ping pong balls. In fact, it would be thousands of times more complex. Uh, it, the, the very existence of the human cell is a miracle. It is amazing that, a, that there even is a human cell. And it's something that makes it very difficult to wrap our minds around. How can we even exist when the human cell is so unbelievably 
improbable. Instead of needing 20 ping pong balls that need to be precise, can you imagine if it was thousands that needed to be precise? Thousands. Something else that we see when we look at the human cell is that it's irreducibly complex. And that's a a complicated term. I know that that freaks people out. Basically, what irreducible complexity means is that something cannot get more simple than it already is without uh, losing its ability to work. And to demonstrate that, I've brought a mousetrap. Yesterday, I told Don that I was getting ping pong balls in a mousetrap for for my illustrations today. And he said, wow, about 20 years ago, I saw a lecture on uh, nuclear physics or something in which he used the same things. You're not sharing anything on nuclear physics, are you? Trust me, I'm going to withhold my information pertaining to nuclear physics from you today. But, but really, the point is, the human cell works a lot like this mousetrap. Now, what do you think would happen with this mousetrap if I were to take just this pin off? This is what, what kind of holds the, holds the, the spring. What, what would happen if I took that part away? The whole thing wouldn't work, right? What would happen if I just took the spring away? I kept everything else there. It wouldn't work, right? What if I took the, the piece of wood away? It still wouldn't work. Okay, that's, that's exactly right. Because the, the, the fact is that if you took one single thing away from this, it wouldn't work at all. And actually, the human cell works the same way, although it's more complex than this. A human cell has all these pieces inside of it which are all working together and which are completely useless without even one of the other parts. Now, let's say that this was a biological organism, that this was a living, breathing thing. Could something like this evolve into existence? Evolution tells us that if something doesn't have a use, it will evolve out of existence. But here we have a thing that if one thing isn't in place, The whole contraption doesn't work. So similarly, evolution does not explain the human cell, the existence of the human cell, because all of those pieces have to be in place at the same time. Evolution couldn't explain this if this was a living, breathing thing, because all of these pieces need to be in place simultaneously in order to have any sort of function whatsoever. Every piece of the human cell needs every other piece of the human cell in order to be functional because the parts have to work together. Now friends, modern science would have us believe that our existence is random. That it wasn't planned, we weren't created, it was just random. God doesn't exist. We don't need God to explain our existence. That's what science tells us. Science has taught us that there was a big bang and suddenly, out of nothing, there was something from nothing. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've never seen something come out of nothing. Uh, And and I've never heard of anybody who's ever witnessed or videotaped or anything, something coming out of nothing. And so maybe what our next experiment should be here would be to take a, a little hypothetical box full of nothing and wait for something to show up. How many of you guys would stick around for that? Yeah, it's not gonna happen, right? That's not a scientific experiment. It's not a scientific uh, hypothesis that something can come from nothing because nobody has ever seen that happen. And yet, something exists. Things exist. Life exists. We exist. Listen to what uh, one 
um, agnostic astronomer. He's, he's not a believer, but he's not an atheist either. He's just saying, I don't think we can know anything. Listen to what one uh, very famous agnostic astronomer says about the very existence of the universe. He says, quote, Astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in the cosmos and on the earth. And, and they found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. And he goes on to say, that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Now, these are the words from Robert Jastrow. Anybody ever heard of Robert Jastrow? If you're into uh, uh, astronomy or anything like that, he actually was a recipient of the NASA Medal for Exceptional Scientific Achievement. And this is what he's saying. He's saying that science has proven that there are supernatural forces, that this couldn't have happened naturally. All this couldn't have happened naturally. Jastrow knew that science couldn't account for how the ping pong balls, thousands and thousands of them, got lined up in the correct order. And he, can't even, and he knows that science can't explain where the ping pong balls even came from because nothing comes from nothing. Something comes from something. Something exists, therefore something brought everything into existence. Now the point I'm trying to make here is that our existence isn't a random accident. When skeptics read through the first few chapters of Genesis, uh, they, may, they might say, oh, you know, this is just, this is old garbage, you know, this is ancient mythology, this is somebody's story of how, you know, this kind of came to be, but science has already proven that, you know, this is false. Science has proven that we got here from evolution. Friends, science will never be able to prove how something can come from nothing because it's not a scientific question. It's a philosophical question. The point I'm trying to make here, the point I'm trying to proclaim, is that we were created by God. We were created by something beyond our scope, Beyond the natural realm, exactly what Jastrow said, there are supernatural forces at work. God created us. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are not allegory. They're not mythological. The explanation that Genesis gives for our existence is far better than evolution, as we've seen. Evolution is so incredibly improbable, not to mention impossible, for something to come from nothing. Now, we spent the past three weeks talking about God. We talked about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But there's one thing that maybe we didn't mention about God that we should have, and that is the fact that he's perfect. God is perfect because only a perfect God, a perfect, all-powerful God, could create something with such incredible precision. Only a perfect and all-powerful God could, cre could create a cell that is irreducibly complex. Only a perfect and all-powerful God could create galaxies and scores of stars and planets that just make our minds go blank. We can't wrap our minds around it. And what we see as we read through the first chapters of Genesis is that with each day of creation, God says, it's good. The first five days, he says it's good. On day six, he says it was very good. It's not just good. It was very good. That's from Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. 
The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, that God placed two trees in the Garden of Eden in the presence of these first two inhabitants of the earth. The first tree mentioned is a tree of good and evil knowledge, which Adam and Eve were instructed not to eat from. The second tree is a tree of life. For a long time, I overlooked that because it doesn't say a whole lot about that. Adam and Eve are apparently never tempted to go near it. We never hear about them thinking about going and eating from the tree of life. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that the serpent tempted Eve to consider eating from the tree of good and evil knowledge. Uh, Let's read verses 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, that is the serpent, said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The first thing he's doing here is he's questioning what God has said. He's making her question what God has said. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, from the, tree, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Eve says, God said that we're going to die if we eat from this tree. And the serpent says, God's a liar. He's still doing that today, by the way. He's still calling God a liar. And at this point, we see two things. First of all, like I said, Adam and Eve were apparently never tempted to go near the tree of life. There's no mention of them even looking at it. But the secondly, second thing, and maybe the most important thing here, is that Eve isn't sure what God has said. Apparently, Adam and Eve don't know God as well as we would expect that they would know God because all of a sudden there's this doubt coming into their minds. I mean, if somebody were to tell me something about my wife, you know, that, that she doesn't like, uh, that, that she likes exercise, I'd say, you don't know my wife, you're lying. Or that she, uh, or that she likes eating salad every day. I'd say, you don't, like, you don't know my wife, right? They're not saying that though. They're saying, oh, maybe God really didn't say that. Maybe he is telling a lie. Maybe, maybe he's not telling us the whole scoop. So here's the thing. God had given them everything that they could possibly want or need, right? Except for one thing. The one thing that he didn't give them was the ability to be like him, was God-likeness. Having everything wasn't enough all of a sudden. They wanted more. They wanted more things. They wanted to become like God. They were convinced by the serpent that God was a liar who just wanted to prevent Adam and Eve from being as big and powerful as he is. So listen to what we read next. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Wow. Did you guys catch that? We, we saw that God was, was calling all these things good in creation, and here Eve is making a judgment for herself. She's saying, oh, this is good. What God has already called evil, what he has said, do not do this. She's saying, oh, this looks good. Now, a lot of people say, I doubt that there was really a tree in there. I mean, this had to be like 
sex or you know something like that because there's nothing sinful with eating from a tree that's right but here's why i think that it is a literal story that there was a little uh, literal tree that they ate from and that is the fact that there is nothing wrong from eating from a tree this is just an act of disobedience they had all these other trees there's it's morally neutral to eat fruit from a tree unless that tree belongs to somebody other than yourself. In which case, it's no longer morally neutral. Now it's morally wrong to go and eat from that tree. So Eve says, oh, it would be good to eat from a tree that God has told me not to eat from. Wow. Now up until this point in the passage, humanity has maintained its innocence. And there was uninterrupted fellowship and communion with God. And there was no shame in the world. There was no shame that Adam or Eve felt because there was no guilt. They had no guilt because they had no sin. There were only blessings and providence and fellowship with God. Everything was right in the world until this point. Everything was right. And all of a sudden, everything goes awry. Everything goes wrong. Sin enters in. And with it, guilt enters in. And with that guilt, shame enters in, and shame becomes prevalent in humanity's disposition. So what do they do? They hide. They try to cover themselves up because they're feeling shame, and they're ashamed to see God because they did something that, whoa, what happened here? He's going to know. And so they try to hide from Him. And in the passages that follow, what we see is that God is the proactive one. God is the one. He knows what's happened. And so what He does is He goes out and He seeks them out. He knows that he can't just sweep this under the rug because their sin has consequences. But there's this conversation that's going on between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as they're dealing with Adam and Eve. Look down at verse 22. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. They're discussing how they're going to restore this suddenly broken relationship between God and man. We read here, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Do you see what's going on here? Adam and Eve have become spiritually separated from God. God, who is the source of both physical and spiritual life. All of a sudden, they're cut off. That fellowship is gone. And so the Trinity has this discussion in which God determines that he's got to kick them out of the garden, not necessarily as punishment, but so that he can restore the relationship. Why? Because if he doesn't, maybe Adam and Eve will eat from this tree of life, and then what's going to happen? He says they're going to live forever. Well, what could possibly be so bad about Adam and Eve living forever? Well, that would make it impossible to fulfill their ultimate purpose in life, the whole reason that God created them, and that is to be in fellowship with God, to be in a loving relationship with God, their creator. And so death sets in, not as a means of punishment. God's not this mean, cruel God who says, you know what, you're just going to die now because of your sin. No, he says, you're going to have to die so that you don't live forever, because if you live forever, you can't be with me. And so if they're allowed to die, they're, they're going to be able to spend eternity in God's presence in heaven. But if they live forever, they'll be separated from God 
forever. God loves them too much to allow that, and so the consequence of their sin is death. Now, one question that a lot of people wrestle with when when they come through this text is, did Adam and Eve just like totally mess things up for God? I mean, was there like this plan A that, that they like messed up with, and so God's like, whoa, I guess I better figure out what plan B is. And the answer is pretty simple. No, nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing. There is nothing that God does not know which is knowable. Anything which is past, present, or future, God already knows it, and here's why. We saw that everything came into existence from nothing, right? There was no material, and suddenly there's a material universe. That tells us that God is not material. He's spirit. He's not in space. He created space, but he's not in it. And physics has taught us that time and space, ask Einstein, time and space are inseparably connected. So if God is not within space, he's also not within time. Right. So God already sees what's going to happen. This is not plan B that God's reverting to here. This is still plan A. God knows that this is going to happen. God was completely prepared for sin to enter the world, and he had a remedy for it from the foundation, before the foundations of the earth. In fact, before Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, God had a plan in place. Listen to what Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, the, the foundation of the world happened before the fall. And before the foundation of the world, God had this plan in place where he knew who was going to be his and who wasn't. He knew before the foundation of the world, before the fall, before the first day of creation. So no, God's plans were not foiled. This is not plan B that we're living in. God knew what humanity would do with free will And he had a plan in place which could not fail before he created anything. One of God's plans was to send his only begotten son in the form of a man to restore the broken relationship between the descendants of Adam and Eve and God. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, God promised that the seed of Eve would bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. It was a promise. But would Adam and Eve's Descendants follow in their footsteps? Would they have this this same inclination now toward evil? Yeah. They would inherit the curse of sin, and they would freely choose to sin. It's not an either-or, it's both. We inherited the curse of sin, and we freely choose to sin. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. He didn't say it's spreading. He said it's spread to all men because all sinned. Hold on to that last phrase there, all sinned, because it's something that we actually find somewhere else. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where our translators say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what's interesting to note here is that the word have in Romans 3, 23 is a byproduct of translation. Both 
Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and Romans chapter 3, verse 23, say the same thing in Greek. They both say pantes hamartan, which is all sinned, or all have sinned. So if we were to read Romans 3.23 the same way that we read Romans 5.12, we'd see that it's just as accurate to say all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul is referring to a past event here where all sinned, all sinned. So what Romans 5.12 tells us is that death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. And the consequence of sin is death. Now, some would say that this is telling us that each person starts with a clean slate and then chooses to sin. Well, yes and no, or or no and yes. Nobody starts with a clean slate. Nobody starts with a level playing field. But everybody does choose to sin. Wait, nobody starts with a level playing field or a clean slate? Is that fair? The fact is that Adam was humanity's representative before God. And that when he sinned, he sinned on behalf of all of humanity. And besides, how could Adam, as an imperfect, flawed person who chose that imperfection, how could he create something perfect? How could he be the efficient cause of perfect children? Let's say that you have a dog that's a complete Heinz 57, you know, just a a total mix of a bunch of different dogs, so to speak. And it it has a little bit of chow, maybe a little bit of German Shepherd, a little bit of Rottweiler, uh, maybe a little bit of Cocker Spaniel, uh, maybe a little bit of Poodle. Um, Let me ask you a question. Can, Can a dog like this, if you breed it with another Heinz 57, can it create a perfect Poodle? No, it can't. And that's why purebred dogs cost... Hundreds and hundreds of dollars, uh, and you can hardly give away a Heinz 57 puppy because you'll never get a purebred out of a mix. The best that a Heinz 57 dog can give you is a Heinz 57 dog. Let me use another illustration. Let's say that you have two glasses of water up here, and into each, and they're pure water, but let's say that I were to take cyanide and put a few drops into each one. How would you feel about that water now? Uh, you, w- you wouldn't drink it, right? I-, I hope you wouldn't drink it. But let's say that I took that water and I poured it into another cup, bo- both contents into, into two more cups. You know, I-, I mixed them in both. What would you get in both cups? Would-, would that water be clean? No, that water would still be tainted with cyanide, uh, cyanide-laced water, right? So if you continually mix cyanide-tainted water with cyanide-tainted water, you will always get cyanide tainted water. In a similar way, Adam's and Eve's natures were completely corrupted, down to their DNA. And the nature of Adam as our legal representative before God was suddenly not a level playing field. It was suddenly thrown towards sin. It had a leaning towards sin. And so Adam was completely and utterly sinful to the core by his own choosing. And that's what he would pass off to his descendants. And so thus, everyone whose heritage ultimately traces back to Adam, uh, that would be everyone, has inherited this same fallen nature, this sinful nature that Adam chose. Not because God gave Adam a sinful nature, but because Adam chose it freely. So everyone who's linked genetically to Adam has inherited this sin-tainted nature from him, 
Even little children? Yeah. That's, a, that's an ugly truth. Even little children. Listen to what David said. Psalm chapter 51, verse 5. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So we were brought forth in iniquity. From the moment that we were conceived, there was iniquity in us. There was sin in us. We all have this biological and spiritual predisposition to turn our backs on God and say, you know what, I know better than you do, and my way is a lot more fun. I'll enjoy my way a whole lot more. We're all sinful. All fall short of his standard. Nobody's good by God's standards. Nobody. So how is this... How this sinful nature is passed down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. How exactly that happens is something that theologians and scholars and philosophers have been talking about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. What nobody is debating, however, is the fact that it does get passed down from one generation to the next, to the next. And it's affected our world in ways that we might not even realize. But when we read God's word... It shows us what the effects of sin have been. First of all, Genesis chapter 3, what we see is that there's this broken relationship with God. And that's been passed down. Humanity has this broken relationship with God. The first thing they did is they tried to hide from God. They're no longer in God's fellowship. They no longer have this daily communion with Him. Now there's this broken relationship with God. That's the first effect of sin. The second effect, you see it again. Chapter 3 there in Genesis Broken relationships with humanity. God says to Adam, have you done this? And Adam says, it wasn't my fault, it was her fault. So there's this broken relationship with humanity. And what we see in the next chapter is that Adam and Eve have kids and Cain kills Abel. Broken relationships within humanity. That's one of the byproducts of sin, one of the effects of sin. The third is that humanity lost sight of the purpose that we were created for. We were created for fellowship with God. And on our own, we don't realize that anymore. I grew up thinking the purpose in life is to get a nine-to-five job, maybe get married, maybe have kids. I don't know, there's really no purpose in life, and so you get this existentialism where you're not really even sure why you exist. The Bible tells us why we exist for fellowship with God. The fourth effect, as we've already said, is that nobody is good. Everybody has this disease where we have this slant towards sin. Everybody's born that way. Everybody. Now, if you've watched any of the various talk shows on television uh, these days, I know that it comes as a surprise to you when I tell you that nobody's good. Because I know that's not what Oprah's saying, right? I know that's not what Maury Povich is saying. They're saying, oh, you know, I think everybody's basically good. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus was, on, was once asked, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And what was Jesus' response? He turns the tables on the guy. He doesn't answer the question, first of all. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. No one is good except God alone. That's from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. So was Jesus saying that he wasn't good? No, Jesus was the incarnation of God. And God is good. 
Jesus was God in the flesh. And if you have any questions about that, go back to our, our sermon on, uh, on focus on Jesus, focus on the Son from a couple weeks ago, or read Mark chapter 2. You can't miss the fact that Jesus is God. He's got the ability, the authority to not only forgive sins, but to heal things that we've never been able to heal. Only God is good. And Jesus is trying to make this man realize the implications of what he's asking. Only God is good because our natural state, the state of uh, our, our nature that we're born with, as a result of Adam's sin, which has been passed down to our parents and to us and to our kids, is corrupted. And there's only one way for us to be good, and that is to be spiritually grafted, so to speak, to Jesus. For that to happen, there needs to be death. Your old nature needs to be put to death. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit here, or do you not, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. So the fact is that everybody who has trusted in Jesus for their salvation went to the cross with him in this spiritual sense and died with him. The only way for us to walk in this newness of life was for the old nature to be nailed to a plank of wood and left to die with Jesus. Listen to what uh, Paul says, going down a couple verses more. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. The point that Paul's making here is that none of us in our old nature is good. None of us is capable of really doing good. We all sinned in our old nature. We all deserve death, and nobody's capable of doing anything truly good because anything that isn't done with the glory of God in mind as the motivation ultimately isn't good. It has a corrupt motivation and is evil. We've talked about this through this series. Karma. Everybody says, oh, it's good karma. You know, you want to build up good karma. I was, I'm reading this book about this runner who he runs for like days on end. I have no idea how he does it. He's psychotic, I think. But what he does, he, he brings a pocket full of dollar bills and he puts these dollar bills under windshields. Why? Not because of the goodness in his heart, but because he wants to build up good karma so that something good will happen to him. Now, that's a corrupt motivation. He's not really trying to bless others. He's trying to get himself blessed as cheap as possible. He's bringing $1 bills, not $5 bills. We're all born with a sinful nature. Adam and all of his descendants have this fallen nature. We're born dead in our sins. And therefore, without a new birth, the new birth that Jesus was telling Nicodemus about in John chapter 3, without this new birth, without the regeneration of the human spirit, nobody is capable of doing anything good, anything pleasing to God. Now, we should note that while God was well aware of the fact that humanity would sin, God didn't cause anybody to sin. It was a level playing field. He didn't say, you know what, I'm going I'm to make this tree as tempting as I possibly can. I'll put the best fruits, the brightest fruits 
on here. Or, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give them a slight disposition toward choosing to sin. No, it was a level playing field. A perfect God, a perfect and all-loving God, wouldn't do anything else. He wouldn't slant it towards sin. He'd say, I love you enough that I'm going to trust you, and you can choose for yourself, because he's perfect and all-loving and all-good. The choice was in Adam's hand. He had a level playing field, so to speak. God's plans for dealing with sin were in place because God knew what was going to happen. But God didn't cause humanity to be sinful or depraved, as we might say. Now, some people might say, wouldn't it have been better, because this world is so consumed with sin, there's so much sin, wouldn't it have been better if God would have just not created at all? I can't even tell you how many people I've heard say that. Why would an all-loving, all-knowing God create a world where everything was going to fall to pieces, where it wouldn't stay perfect? So maybe, maybe it would have been better for God to have not made anything at all than for him to have made what he made. The mistake in that type of thinking, however, is that it's not logically possible to compare things that don't have anything in common. Being and non-being have nothing in common. Existence and non-existence have nothing in common. So you can't actually logically compare and say that one is morally superior to the other. For example, I, I was born without a sense of smell. I have no idea what it's like to have a sense of smell. Uh, I don't know what it's like to smell the, the fragrance of spring flowers. Uh, but on the other hand, I also don't know what it's like to smell the stench of a sweaty gym room or uh, anything like that. And I used to win a lot of bets in soccer camp, betting that I could smell somebody's socks after a day of playing soccer. Let me just tell you, I have no sense of smell at all. But sometimes my wife will say something smells really good, and I'll think, that has a, that has a smell? It, it just, it's something that I can't wrap my mind around. Like, a piece of wood has smell. And I'm sitting there thinking... I can't even imagine what wood would smell like. So I'll say something like, you know, honey, could you, could you tell me what, could you describe for me what that, um, what that smells like? And here's the thing. She can't do it without comparing it to other smells. Just like a, a blind person, you know, try, try, uh, try explaining to a blind person what the color green looks like. You can't because there's nothing for them to compare it to. Just like it's impossible to say, that it would have been morally better if God wouldn't have created anything at all. See, at the foundation of that type of thinking is this theory that God had this perfect plan in which he would create Adam and Eve and everything would just be peachy forever. They would never sin because they'd love him so much and when they did sin, they, they messed up God's plans. That's really what lies at the heart of the, the person who says it would have been better for God to have not created. No, God knew what was going to happen. It was God's plan A for all of this to happen. It was his plan A. And when humanity fell into sin through the actions of Adam and, of Adam and Eve, it wasn't like he had to revert to plan B. Listen to what Erwin Lutzer says. He says, quote, The scheme of history and redemption was always in the divine mind. God created that he might redeem. He redeemed that he might better display his glory. Yes, the present world with all of its sin and pain is plan A, end quote. The reality is that the fall of humanity gave God an opportunity to demonstrate some really 
really neat things. First of all, it gave him the opportunity to demonstrate his love for those who would never and could never earn his love. They could never deserve his love. Number two, it gave humanity the option, the opportunity to choose to turn from their own way. We had a choice, God's way or our way. Number three, it gave God the opportunity to defeat sin and death. God couldn't confront and overcome and demonstrate himself to be greater than an adversary that he never allowed to exist. And so God, through death, through pain and suffering and all the evil in the whole universe, God says, I am bigger, I am stronger, I will defeat death and sin as my adversaries. Jonathan Edwards said this, God created the universe for the outflow, the overflow of his glory. God wanted to reveal himself as fully as possible. He wanted to show that with mere words, he could create galaxies that were too great for us to fathom, galaxies that we couldn't wrap our minds around. He wanted to to display not only his power, but also the unfathomable riches of his mercy and love. He wanted to show his glory and splendor in a way that nobody could possibly ever miss. We're going to be talking about that next week. A lot, of the, a lot of this is what we're going to be talking about next week. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So for the atheist or the agnostic who says, well, there's really no evidence for God's existence, what does this tell us? Paul said they, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So this tells, us, this tells us that they are suppressing the truth of God's existence. Why? Because of unrighteousness. Because they have this sin nature. Romans chapter 1, verse 19, the next verse, he says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. What this tells us is that God put the evidence for his existence inside of every person. Why didn't he put it outside? I think he put it outside too, but it's also inside. I'd say he had to put it inside because what do you do with somebody who's blind and deaf? Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf, said through a translator once that before she was able to communicate with anybody, she knew that God existed. She just knew that nothing comes from nothing. Something comes from something. See, not only does everyone sin, but people know when they sin. People know when they sin. Little kids, what do they do? You tell them, okay, don't get into the cookie jar. What do they do? They get into the cookie jar and then they, they give you this expression like, oh boy, I'm about to get it. Because they know. They know that they've been disobedience. We instinctively know that it's morally wrong to murder or to steal. We know that. And in fact, we have no excuse when we do those things. When, when the, the soldiers in Nazi Germany were tried for war crimes, they said, we were just following the instructions of our superior officers. You can't hold us guilty for anything. And what did they say? They said, no, there's this knowledge within you of what is right and wrong, and that is what you have violated. And so those soldiers who were just following the commands of their superior officers were found guilty. So where would this 
intuitive, instinctive knowledge of what's right and wrong, morally right and wrong. Where would that come from? It comes from the source, the standard of what's right and wrong, God. See, without a straight line to measure against, we don't know what a crooked line looks like. Anybody in here ever heard of a guy named C.S. Lewis? Yeah, everybody's heard of C.S. Lewis. Did you know that he was an atheist for a long time? He didn't believe in God. Listen to what he said about his conversion. This is from uh, Mere Christianity. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. Kids are born with this sin nature. People are killing each other and murdering each other and stealing from each other and doing all kinds of hateful things. How could there be a God in the midst of this type of world? And he goes on to say, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And the more he thought about this, he was a smart guy. The more he thought about this, the more he realized there's something within me, within everybody, that says this or that is morally wrong. This is one of the most profound effects of sin that anyone would not come to the same argument that C.S. Lewis had. That anyone would not think through this whole thing. Like, why does everybody around the world recognize that murder is wrong? See, the image of God is still present within humanity. It's effaced. It's damaged very, very badly by sin, but it's not erased. It's effaced, but not erased. We have this instinctive moral compass, which is based on God's nature and his standard of righteousness. But because of sin, a lot of people ignore it. Now, there have been multiple studies which have all demonstrated something kind of interesting about people. They've been doing these studies for over 100 years. What they've done is they have blindfolded people and told them to walk for half an hour to an hour in a straight line. And uh, Robert Krulwich, who's the science correspondent of National Public Radio, actually uh, brought this study uh, out as an illustration of something else. But he cites one study in which subjects were blindfolded and asked to walk in a straight line for an hour. Not a single one of the people asked to do it were able to do it. Not one. Every single one of the participants thought that they were walking in a straight line. They were asked on a scale of 1 to 10, how certain are you that you are walking in a straight line? And most of them said 9 or 10. I'm I'm pretty sure. I'd I'd bet that I was walking in a straight line. And he noted, Robert Krolwich noted, quote, this tendency has now been studied for at least a century. We animated field tests from the 1920s so you can literally see What happens to men who are blindfolded and told to walk across a field in a straight line or swim across a lake in a straight line? And he goes on to say, and they couldn't. Apparently, there's a profound inability in humans to walk straight, end quote. Now, this study revealed something. It revealed that there's only one way for people to walk in a straight line, and that's to set their eyes on a point of reference, to look for something, focusing their sight on something ahead of them, Maybe a building, a landmark, uh, a person, something like that. And Krolwich concludes, quote, without external cues, there's apparently something in us that makes us turn from a straight path, end quote. 
It's clear that the Bible teaches that the same principle is true, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. None of us on our own can walk in that straight line. We have all inherited a sin nature, and we all freely choose to sin. And with all the facts in place, I think the best verbalization, the the best way to, to sum this all up is what we find in the Lutheran liturgy that says we confess that we are in bondage to sin, and we cannot free ourselves. But you know what this did? This set up a place, this set up a stage for God to demonstrate his love in the most amazing way possible. Next week, we're going to be talking about salvation. And we're going to be asking some really tough questions like, what about people who have never heard of God? What about people who have never heard the the name of Jesus? How can they be saved? We're going to be talking about that next week. I started this off by talking about how last week it was a mess around here. It was an absolute mess. The weeds had grown totally out of control. And whenever something like that happens, I'm reminded to look at myself and remember that sin is like that in my life. That if I don't stay on top of it, if I'm not confessing my sins regularly, they're going to grow. Even the small ones. You know, the, you look out right now and you would never guess that there are all these weeds among the grass. In the same way, when I look at my life, a lot of the times I see the same thing. And I say, wow, I need to go back to confession. I need to confess my sins before God. No, I don't have to go to uh, you know, another person uh, who, who wears a collar and sits behind a darkened room and, and confess like that. But I do need to confess to any persons that I have wronged. I do need to confess to Jesus when I've wronged him, when I've sinned against him. Because ultimately, the more I sin, the more I'm turning my back on, on him, the person who redeemed me. And so this is just a reminder for us to stay on top of our sin. We're new creations with old habits. That flesh nature sometimes creeps in and says, remember how much you used to enjoy this? Why not just do it once? Stay on top of it. Confess your sins, and God will be faithful to forgive you. Let's pray. God, we thank you, first of all, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we know that this is not plan B. We praise you and we worship you because we realize that we were not created for a world like this. And when we look at this world, God, we see so much sin, so much corruption. And I pray, God, that in the midst of all this, you would help us further realize our need for you. Further realize how depraved we used to be And help us, Lord, to exercise this new nature that we have in you, where we can say no. We can choose not to sin because of what you've done for us. God, I pray that you would convict us of any sin in our lives. Make it a burden that we just can't wait to get rid of, God. That we would take these things to you and confess our sins to you. And that you would purify us because of your amazing love and because of your promises. We thank you, Lord, for your promises. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you, God, that you are a God who is just glorious. And you're displaying your glory despite the sinfulness of this world. 
We love you. Teach us to be like you. In Jesus' name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. in the springtime open and bloom it's that moment the sun breaks through a stormy afternoon stars in the night sky rain on the grass such beautiful moments they'll pass more high great deep more beautiful high great deep more beautiful high great deep more beautiful, more beautiful, take me deeper.